can we have real bipartisanship in this country and not as in corporate bipartisan deals that we all hate and the mainstream media loves, but actually populist bipartisanship? Can Democrats and Republicans run together? And then can they win? We actually have the answer tonight. So I'm welcoming back Joe Solomon. He's from Charleston, West Virginia. And he was co-director of SOAR, West Virginia. And also Dr. Frank Annie, also from Charleston. Dr. Annie is a Republican. Joe is a Democrat. And you guys were on here running together before. So what happened? Did you guys win? Yeah, we won. We won together. <laughs> okay, it look at this. Amazing. It's amazing. It is amazing. So were either of you incumbents? No. No, no. Did you beat incumbents? I did not. We my my race was a new redistricting. so it was up for grabs. Okay. I I was running for city council at large in Charleston and we took out, so to speak, some some folks that were clearly chosen by the elites in the primary, but in the general, um, uh, we did not beat any incumbents. Okay, all right. So a little bit in the primary. So, uh, but but not enough. not really. But you know, yeah, yeah. got you. It's an large seat. Neither one of neither one of us were endorsed by the newspaper. Uh, you guys so were that, not. That Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. That, that's really relevant. Let me stick with that. Because in in the national press, they love bipartisanship, okay? But they love it when yeah. Republicans and Democrats mm-hmm. agree to tax cuts for the rich. So in this case, the press did not like this bipartisanship? Well, uh, have you read about the Charleston Gazette Mail in the last few days? No. Oh, you've been missing out on another big story. Uh, you know, the, the president of our news of the company that owns our newspaper is a Democrat who is the minority president of the, you know, in 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 the in the Western Legislature House of Delegates, and so he he owns the paper. And this week he let go three journalists for criticizing this 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 president's fluff interview with Don Blankenship, a coal baron who's. Uh, who was found guilty of uh, breaking mine safety laws that led mm-hmm. to the Upper Big Branch disaster, where 29 coal miners died. Mm-hmm. So our newspaper is not quite a beacon of uh, you know independent, fair-minded journalism that looks to find the common ground. It's it's a it's a weapon of the elites, uh, with some very good journalists still there, uh, mm-hmm. but a number of which were were uh, shorn this week. Yeah, I got news for you. That sounds like. Uh, exactly like the national press, um, owned by members of the establishment and the elites, protecting other members of the establishment and the elites, uh, supporting whether they're Democrats or Republicans, supporting the corporate politicians over the populists. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what we all live under. And in fact, then, yeah. and then the guy who runs the paper fires people who criticize them. What is he, Elon Musk? Right. Yeah, we have our own little Elon in, in yeah, exactly. the capital of West Virginia. Okay, but now here comes the miracle, which is you guys. So, yeah, Frank, let me start with you on this question. How, how do you think sure. you guys won? I think we won by our ground game. I think in our previous interview, we would go around and we knocked on 700 doors since the primary. 
and we had conversations with over 300 people according to my notes. And we allowed ourselves to have a message put out there that we are here for constituent services. We are here to help you. We are here to provide a voice for you on council and actually do the things that council promises every four years when they see these people come around. We didn't do honking waves. We went around and we actually talked to people one on one. I can clearly tell you that and help me physically. I've lost 32 pounds knocking on all these doors and we had amazing encounters with people. We had amazing notes and you know, it's led into already us getting to work in the city to better the people's lives here. Yeah, okay, when we when we got to people's doors, we said, I said, do you wanna see a magic trick? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm a Democrat, Dr. Frank Gagne is a Republican and we're running together. And people's eyes would just, would just go boof. Yeah. Um, and then we would share our common vision for the city and where we had common ground and people were really hungry for it. Yeah. So, you know, I know that West Virginia- And it, it shook out in the numbers. Like I was running with six other at-large candidates in, in Dr. Frank Annie's ward. And I got the most votes among all those six citywide candidates in Dr. Dr. Annie's ward. So not mm-hmm. only did, uh, like it worked as a political strategy, as a campaign strategy. Not only did Dr. Frank Annie win, um, but we also very much won the ward. So, Joe, I know that West Virginia is obviously more of a red state, voted for Trump in a giant number. I think that people that mistake it for being very conservative, I think that it's probably a little bit different dynamic than people think it is. I think it's more of a populist state than a conservative state necessarily, although it certainly has plenty of conservative social instincts, right? But but Charleston, I imagine, like all the cities, is a, is a little bit more uh, left-leaning, uh, but I don't know if in West Virginia that means it votes for Democrats or no, it still votes for Republicans. So educate me on that. Well, it shakes out in, in the populace on city council. We have 26 city council members. So for folks who hear that number, they're thinking, whoa, that's a lot. And it cuts both ways. It means you can have much more direct democracy, much more representation, mm-hmm. or it can mean uh, things are really hard to work out on full council chamber, right? It cuts both ways. But here's the thing, of those 26, 21 right now are uh, Democrats and five are Republicans. So for the past four years, we've had, we just had this election, but we're not in power just yet. So 21 Democrats have had the ability to, to do all the things we'd want, right? To pass a, a living wage. Uh, for for all workers in the city to pass paid sick leave, uh, to open up a, a warming center for when uh, you know water uh, turns to ice for our unsheltered and vulnerable neighbors, and n- none of those things happened, right? None of those things happened. Yeah. We have to wait till it gets to 15 degrees um, uh, uh, until until warming centers open, and the city still isn't yet funding those warming centers. Mm-hmm. So that should tell you the power of uh, or the the the, the, the Democrats have not really quite fully acted at the in the, in the best values that the, the Democrats run on, where we take care of each other and we take care of our own. Yeah, so that, that also is exactly like the at the national level, uh, where Democrats pretend they're gonna help you and then they don't. Um, but I wanna come back to that in a second. Uh, Frank, so that means you won as the minority in that area. <laughs> so even though it's West Virginia, Charleston, apparently more of a Democratic city. So. How did you convince the people of Charleston to vote for a Republican like you? Well, I went around and I told them what I was about. I ran on the public health aspect as hard as I could on the infrastructure aspect. 
I think what pushed me over was I had actual goals of things I wanted to do. I wanted to be on council. I wanted to actually have projects that would improve the city. And that included municipal broadband, that included doing something about you know our overdose crisis, that included the homeless population. These were actually tangible solutions. And I think that when we went around and we talked to people, they're like, yeah, that sounds perfectly fine to me. That sounds something that you can actually do that will make the city better. And so we didn't really get a lot of pushback from people because we had thought out our platform and we're working on it right now. We, we really want to serve the people of this city. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, go ahead, Joe. For what it's worth, like uh, Dr. Annie has already gotten a phone call about speeding in, in his ward, and so, uh, what did Dr. Annie do? Did he say, "Well, you, you know, you're a you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican"? Like, no, like potholes and speeding cars are not, you know, partisan issues. Instead, he he said, well, "Let's co- let's come by for a visit. Let's witness the speeding up close." He wrote uh, to the city manager, and in turn wrote to the different city departments. And within within a week, uh, the police were there catching speeders. And that constituent, Carolyn, sent uh, Dr. Annie and myself an email saying. I'm speechless. Mm-hmm. You know, no counselor has been able to help with this issue for years, and now we're seeing progress. And I mean, the bar has been kind of low, yeah. you know, but we didn't run to play limbo. No, yeah. we we came to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, guys, from when you guys were running, and I and I had you guys on, it was clear that you were trying to actually represent the people. And uh, and if you talk to enough people, I think that they get that across. Of course, the problem with the larger races is that. Uh, you got 750,000 people in a congressional district. It's very hard to talk to enough of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that goes to show you that the problem isn't the voters. The voters definitely want people representing them, definitely want uh, bipartisanship, not in the corporate way, but in the real populist way that you guys are doing it. Uh, so the problem is the filter. So the filter mm-hmm. is the media. If the media actually was fair to you guys and to others, uh, we might have a completely Different system, we might have a completely different Congress, etc. And I think you guys are an excellent example of that. So, Joe, I do one more question to you, at least on the reaction of the Democratic Party, because, it, like you said, it's not like they were getting a lot done, and they're they're from the old school. A lot of those folks, and the old school is more like, oh, corporate. You know, donors get their way, and everybody goes along to get along. So, what was the reaction you got inside the caucus after you won? Uh, they said, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the caucus never wanted me uh, running in the first place, so they never wanted my arm around Dr. Frank Annie. Uh, in fact, when I took a photo with my arm around Dr. Frank Annie two months before the election, uh, what happened? What happened when I posted that photo? Democrat and Republican, you know, uh, standing next to each other, saying we want to work together. The Democratic Party took my sign out of county headquarters. Mm-hmm. They took my name off of a mailer that they sent to tens of thousands of voters in the county. I'm the only name they removed, right? Mm-hmm. Every other Democrat person who won the primary, this is after the primary, got to keep their name on it. And then, so after after we won a few a day a day or two after the election, the the first time I think I got a proactive note from the county headquarters, they said, "We've got two of your signs in the back. You got a couple hours if you want to come pick them up." Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> does seem like an awfully warm welcome. <laughs> they do not like to disturb the way things are done. And as you can tell, the people definitely want it disturbed. That's why they voted for you guys. Frank, were you going to say something there? Uh, yeah, it was uh, completely uncalled for. Joe shared, shared with me all of this, and it it was petty to tell you the truth. It was, I mean, he was the the primary nominee for the party, and they should embrace this. You know, we're trying to do things that are proactive. Yeah, and and but the reality is, you guys are on a different side than them, right? Because the labels um, sometimes they mean a lot, and sometimes they mean nothing at all. Uh, right. You know, so if if Dr. Annie's got more of a market-based approach and Joe has a slightly different way of handling issues, but you both clearly care and you're both trying to get something fixed, you're not hooked on donor money, you're just trying to serve the people. It's that's come screaming across whether it's in your interviews with me or when you're at the doors and talking to the voters and obviously it did because you guys won uh with none of the infrastructure help that the that the establishment has. And uh, and so the people in the establishment also are bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans generally screw over the voters and serve their donors. So we're looking at it completely wrong, and I think the national press is driving this. It's not Republicans versus Democrats; it's the establishment versus the populace. That's right. Yeah, and and that's and been your experience as well in West Virginia, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's you're serving the donor class here. It doesn't matter if uh, you you can be different on a you know a so, social issues, which are some of the policies have been disastrous recently in West Virginia. But when it comes to business tax cuts, there's bipartisan support in the House of Delegates and the State Senate, completely. Every time, <laughs> there's no question about that. And so, uh, and look, the national press tells us that Joe Manchin. Uh, is uh, beloved by the people of, of West Virginia because of how conservative slash moderate he is. Um, but here you guys are, that's not the direction you went, right? You did not go, in reality, of course, Joe Manchin is 100% pro-corporate, doesn't care what the label is as long as the check's got his name that's on right. it. Um, and, and it turns out when you take away the filter of the biased news, that's not what the people of West Virginia want, is it, Joe? Of course not. I mean, the good news now is that uh, the the shakeout of the Senate means that uh, Senator Manchin has less power. So now West Virginians that are focused on uh, politics who've been really absorbed in trying to get Manchin, maybe not to put a monster on the bench or not to pass a dirty pipeline or to stop blocking the Green New Deal. We can now, I think, ha we have this opportunity now to harness that Manchin energy and put it into local politics for the things that we really, really want. You know, can we pass a paid sick leave? Uh, can we pass a living wage? Can we build that municipal broadband where the city uh, owns its own broadband? Can we open warming centers? Can we figure out a response to the overdose crisis? Can we do what we can to protect abortion in a state where it's a crime? Uh, there's real opportunities now. And I think that in a way we've gotten ahead and we've, we've modeled what a new politics can start to look like. But now we need to build um, what a new movement can look like. All right, Joe Solomon and Dr. Frank Annie now Councilman in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, and a bit of American heroes. So, uh, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. It's a great story. Have unnecessary killings by cops against citizens gone down since the George Floyd case? Let's find out. We're going to bring in Samuel Sinyangwe. He's a data scientist and founder of mapping police violence. Samuel, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me on. Uh, no problem. So uh, let's start with a question that I just uh, explained, uh, which is, all right, well, we had the George Floyd case, uh, tons of protests and calls for reform. Uh, so are the police reformed? No, uh, they're not. Actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, they actually are killing more people now than they were before uh, George Floyd was murdered. So, so far in 2022, uh, our organization, Mapping Police Violence, has tracked uh, 1,098 people who've been killed by police through December 10th. Um, so that total is probably even larger today. Um, and that is an all time record uh, in terms of data collection through this point of the year. Um, it's higher than the total in 2021 up through this point of the year, higher than 2020 and every single year on record going back for the past decade. Um, and subsequent research that has come out over the past couple of years um, has actually shown that the past few years have, have been records for the past several decades um, in terms of police violence. So uh, things are getting worse and not better. So of course, I think most people would ask, uh, why do things get worse rather than better after all those protests? So one of the things that you see in the data when you really break it down, not only at the national level, but you break it down by region, you break it down by city versus county. Um, you find that a lot of the increase in killings by the police over the past couple of years or so um, has happened in more rural areas. It's happened in uh, counties, countywide law enforcement, like sheriff's departments in particular have seen a big increase um, in killings by, by, by deputies. Um, and so this is something that is consistent with a backlash, an ideological backlash from more conservative parts of the country that are doubling down, probably in part in reaction to um, the protests, in reaction to uh, the racial reckoning that has happened in this country, the national conversation about the fact that the police are continuing to kill three people every single day in this country. Um, and we're seeing a backlash now in more rural parts of the country, more conservative parts of the country, sheriff's departments. Um, that are actually increasing violence instead of reducing it. And to give uh, folks at home a sense of how unjust a lot of these killings are, uh, about what percentage of the killings are when someone's running away from the cops? And, and I would argue almost certainly not a threat anymore. So when we break down the data, about a third of police killings are of somebody who is running away at the time or driving away at the time. Um, and you know, when we dive even deeper into the circumstances behind police killings, we find not only just this year, but every single year, only about one in every three uh, cases that leads to a police killing um, starts off as a reported violent crime. So you hear this narrative that you know violence is increasing. There's a lot of violence. The police have a dangerous job. But the reality is, when we break down these incidents, um, the majority of them don't start with any act of violence. Um, would they start with a routine response to a traffic violation or a person who is actually calling the police because they or, or a loved one needs help with a mental health issue um, or a, a low level uh, nonviolent issue, oftentimes having to do with homelessness or substance use, poverty. So people who really need help who end up having the police called on them and then end up being killed by the police as a result. Yeah, and I've been reading about some of the absurd cases from this year, including one time a guy shoots and kills someone because he's like, I thought he was gonna grab my flashlight. Ooh, that does sound awfully dangerous, right? Another time six officers kill a 20 year old that was sleeping in his car. I mean, how much of a threat could he have been? <laughs> so, uh, but, but of course the cops are trained to think that everything's a threat. Um, and so let, let me get to the, the question that I have to ask on this topic and I ask every time. Um, 
I think the the number one culprit. I mean, we're going to dismiss the bad apples nonsense. That's obviously not the case, right? But I think the number one culprit is the training that we train them. Hey, if you think there's anything slightly dangerous, that you're slightly afraid of something that might possibly possibly happen, just kill the person and move on. Um, so that's my theory as to what the problem is. Uh, what's been your experience in tracking this? So. Uh, with regard to training, it's true that the police are spending a whole lot of time in training, learning how to shoot and learning how to shoot to kill. So they spend about 58 hours, the average police recruit, 58 hours they spend learning how to shoot firearms training. And about eight hours learning de-escalation and another eight hours learning how to interact with folks who have mental health issues. So obviously that's not aligned with a vision of reducing police violence or interacting with people in a way that is peaceful and de-escalatory. However, um, the research that's been done looking at various training programs across the country usually doesn't find a big impact in reducing police violence, in particular police shootings. Um, one of the big culprits here just has to do with the sheer uh, massive array of arrests that the police are making every single year. Um, so the police are about 20 times more likely to use force against somebody um, while making an arrest versus a, another type of stop where they don't make an arrest. Nationwide, there are anywhere between six and 10 million arrests made in a typical year in this country. And only about five or 6% of those arrests are for violent crimes. So the vast majority of arrests are for low level nonviolent issues. And each of those arrests presents a real risk to the person being arrested of being harmed or even killed by the police. So you know, I've mentioned that about 1100 people have been killed by police so far this year. But research suggests that for every person killed by police, between one and two people are shot by police and survive. And there are about 55,000 people who are hospitalized because of police use of force each year. And the vast majority of those cases stem from a police enforcement of a low level nonviolent issue. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, there are cities that are now limiting the police role in traffic enforcement that are creating alternative responses to mental health crises. There are cities that are drastically reducing low level arrests and decriminalizing aspects of drug possession. So there is a different path forward. There are some cities who are already making progress, but nationwide the picture remains a grim one. Right, So, but when you get into that, it does get complicated, right? So if you say, hey, bring a mental health professional to a situation, especially when they say, "Oh, somebody might hurt themselves in a, a home, I'm worried and they have this condition or that condition, or maybe they're homeless and they're out in the streets and people are worried about their mental health, but they are doing something potentially violent, right? You do have to bring the cops though, don't you, to make sure that the either the social worker or the mental health professional is safe? Well, so here's what's interesting. There are mental health first responder programs being piloted in dozens of cities across the country now, many of the largest cities. So New York, we have one in Chicago, in LA, San Diego. Denver is probably the most notable, the STAR program. That's now started releasing data about their, their outcomes. So they've been in operation since 2020. They've responded to thousands of mental health calls, thousands across the city. And they have not had to call in the police to, to make an arrest. They've not had to call in the police for backup. It totally flips on its head this idea that the police are necessary to respond to these types of situations. Now, there are situations that can be more challenging and there are some cities that are adopting a tiered model where for most mental health first response 
they have a unarmed first responder or clinician. And for some very high you know, stakes cases or cases where somebody, let's say, is threatening somebody with a gun, they might have the police play a backup role while that clinician actually plays the primary role in de-escalating the situation. Because that's what they're trained to do professionally, not the officer. So there are different approaches to different types of situations. But the, when we look at the data in, in its totality among the programs that have, have been piloted, um, they're responding to these issues without needing to call in the police for backup. And they're doing so with a reduced cost to the taxpayer. So it costs less per response than the amount of money and funding that's going to the police to respond to these same issues. Um, so it's a win-win when we look at it. So, okay, so that's very encouraging news. And so clearly on, I did the math on eight hours of training. That's one day of training. Uh, so one day of training cops on mental health issues ain't gonna cut it. And so if they're doing these pilot programs and they're saying they don't need to police in most of the calls, that's great, okay? So now let's, so that was mental health. Let's talk about, you mentioned low level crimes and that cops are responding too much. There though, I'm a bit of, at, a, at a bit of a loss. So, so let's say it's a low level crime, somebody goes into CVS and grabs a bunch of stuff. But it's still a crime, we gotta send cops, don't we? So when we look at the status quo, I mean, police are not responding to the majority of low level crimes already, right? So they are making massive number of arrests for low level offenses. But when you look at that in proportion to the total number of reported low level crimes and the total number of crimes that happen that nobody reports, it's actually a small proportion of the totality of it. So the police aren't even playing a primary role in, in, in addressing this in the first place. And then when you look at the clearance rates, I mean, San Francisco famously, uh, we saw clearance rates and they were in the single digits uh, when it comes to things like theft, uh, property crimes. So the police aren't solving these crimes for anyone, they're not helping anyone. Um, so the existing model, the status quo is not a successful model in dealing with these things in the first place. Now, when we look at some of the research that's come out examining different approaches to these situations, one of the fascinating findings um, that has come out has actually been this idea that police enforcing and arresting and jailing people, leaving them with a, an arrest record, a criminal record um, for what is often uh, crimes of poverty. So petty theft, um, stealing things worth a couple of dollars from you know, CVS or what have you, um, crimes of uh, issues of health, uh, mental health or substance use, use so drug possession, um, you know, liquor possession. Um, crimes that have to do with, uh, you know, a host of traffic offenses. Um, so we're talking about very low-level issues, uh, nonviolent issues. And when you actually arrest and incarcerate people and prosecute them for those issues, it becomes more likely for them to then engage in subsequent crime because they end up even even more destitute than they were before they were arrested and incarcerated for that issue. Yeah. So yeah. the issue is how to prevent these crimes from happening and keep us safe. Policing may actually be making things worse rather than better. And so we have to think about different approaches to these issues. How do we actually resource communities so that they can not have these needs in the first place? So we can treat folks who have mental health issues, treat folks with substance use issues, uh, and not have it be a situation where we're ending up spending a lot of money to incarcerate people and make the problem even worse. Yeah, so th that's where we diverge, Samuel. So I agree with you up till now. And I like that they're bringing the mental health professionals. I think that's really positive development. I. I Think we encourage our cops to shoot way too much, etc. But no, you have to arrest people for theft, and if you don't, you'll have a lot more theft. And so, is it a crime or isn't it a crime? And so, by the way, if you say no, traffic violations aren't a crime. We should use someone else other than cops. Great, no problem. I agree. 
So, but I'm gonna leave that alone because we're gonna run out of time. So I do wanna ask you about, you said that you didn't think it was mainly the trainings. I wanna push back on that too because all other countries have crime too. And they have low level crime, they have high level crime, or the kind of crime we have. And their cops don't murder people on a regular basis. So aren't we obviously training them differently than for example, Sweden is? So I think there are huge differences in how different countries train cops, equip cops. In many countries, they don't give every cop a gun. So that makes a big difference. They reserve guns for cases that involve you know, a, a very high risk situation. So I think it's completely different. I think we can learn a lot from what other countries are doing. And it serves as a reminder that you know the police in this country don't have to kill people. You have countries like Japan, where, which is you know about 40% the size of the US by population, where on a given year, you may have nobody killed by police in the entire country versus the United States where you have between 11 and 1200 people killed every year. So I think there's a lot we can learn. I think training you know, is something that's been explored. The research is still not proving that it can make a big difference. Um, doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, uh, but I think we have to think about how to remove from the policing function some of these issues that you just can't train any old person to be a mental health clinician. Like you should actually have a, a real trained professional clinician responding to issues of mental health crises. And we have those, it's, they're just not being deployed uh, to those situations. It's somebody with a gun who, as you've mentioned, is not trained to deal with that situation. I think that has to change. Yeah, I think guns are a huge part of the problem and I agree with that. But uh, until I see a study that says it isn't the training, logically, it's to me, it's obviously the training. Uh, in all of these other countries, Japan, Sweden, Canada, UK, you name it, they don't train that you should kill right away in case there's a slight danger. And we do train that way and it's not. that's why it's not surprising. By the way, accountability I'm sure is another giant part of the answer. We have no accountability for cops who kill citizens here. And I presume in other countries they have some accountability. But anyways, guys, mappingpoliceviolence.us is the site. It's really interesting. Samuel, thank you for joining us, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you.